0: Job chapter 38. If there is anything in my life that is like kryptonite to Superman, it is whining. I can't handle whining. Whatever it is that makes Bruce Banner turn into the Hulk, like for me, it, that thing is whining. Like, and so I think Job 38 begins the climax of the book because all the whining stops. There's no more whining. There is God who reveals himself. And uh, I think, I really do think that this last part of the book of Job is really the most fascinating part um, on a lot of levels. Uh, Job has whined and complained about what God has done. Uh, Job has said he wants an audience with God. And you know what Job gets? He gets an audience with God. God actually shows up. And it goes nothing like what Job anticipates. It doesn't go exactly how... Job thinks it's going to go. It doesn't go anywhere close to that. Job had anticipated putting God on trial for basically what he had done, taking away his children and taking away all of his wealth and and putting him in misery. He thought he would question God and God will answer him. He will show God that he is in the right and that all of this stuff that is going on in his life, he does not deserve that, of course, is not how it goes at all. It's not even close. Job, in fact, doesn't get even one question out. Not one. He doesn't get one question off. God asks literally hundreds of questions over and over. Most of them are rhetorical. God is not Job's peer, his peer. God is Job's maker, God is Job's creator and sustainer. He is his sovereign. And that's what God really wants Job to understand is I'm in charge here. You are not in charge. I will be doing the questioning. You will not be doing any questioning at all. And so I think the book of Job really ends with one of the most fascinating sections in all of the scripture. I think, in fact, when we think of Job. Usually, we think of the very beginning, and we think of the very end, and we try to forget pretty much everything in the middle um, because it's so depressing. Uh, based on what the what the guys are are saying. But what we have gotten to here is sort of the proverbial pot at the end of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, right? We've got to the really, really good part. And uh, and I'm going to dig in. We're going to cover chapter 38 here uh, this morning. That's that's the that's the plan for this morning. But I want to give us a little bit of a, a broader picture of what these last several chapters hold for us, just so we can get an idea of, of what's going on. So I think most of you guys know that these last Few chapters are are this nonstop barrage of rhetorical questions that God asks uh, Job. In thirty-eight, in chapter thirty-eight, he really focuses on the grandeur of creation itself: space, stars, the the creation of the earth, the creation of the cosmos. This is we could say God's cosmic power over all things. That's what he's trying to highlight. To Job here in, in chapter 38. He is in sovereign control of the big scheme of things. Even the Pleiades and the Orion, those little bitty stars we see at night, Yeah, God is in control even of them. He, he handles all of it. At the end of chapter 38 and on into chapter 39, he sort of transitions over to the animal kingdom. People have talked about God takes Job to the zoo and he starts talking about all these different creatures he talks about lions and ravens and donkeys and horses and eagles. Can Job feed them? Does he know when they give birth? Does he can he even handle them? Does he know anything about them? Does he even know where they live? And of course the answer to all of that is, is no. He doesn't know really anything about that. And the point seems to be in chapters 30, at the end of 38 and into 39, that God cares even for animals down to the smallest detail. And because he cares for animals, down to the smallest detail, of course, he cares for Job and people who are made in his image. But God is presented as this all-powerful creator God, but also the sustainer God. Those are the two things. Not only does he create, but he also sustains down to every little last detail. So if we were just to be left with Chapter 38, where God is kind of in in charge of this cosmic thing, we might have the God of deism, where God just sort of winds up the top and lets it go. But actually, chapter 39 lets us know, no, God actually cares for every aspect of creation, sovereignly cares for it, takes care of it, provides for it. And so we need to understand that he, of course, cares for us. Chapters forty and forty-one, or maybe more of the memorable chapters, uh, as we uh, see God describe Behemoth and Leviathan. Behemoth and Leviathan. We're, we'll get there in a few weeks, but I'm going to argue um, from a from a young Earth point of view that these are what we would basically now call dinosaurs. That's 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 my understanding of them. I think that the Behemoth was likely some sort of a sauropod dinosaur, like one of the big green-eating ones, you know, that big neck, big tail, that kind of thing, and that Leviathan is some sort of an ocean-going dinosaur, uh, maybe a cousin to the plesiosaur or something like that. Uh, You'll look in in the ESV Study Bible footnotes, and they'll say, well, uh, Behemoth was a hippo or an elephant, or Leviathan was a crocodile, something like that. Um, I I don't buy that. Uh, Those animals don't fit those descriptions, um, number one. And number two, the whole point is, those animals are belong in a zoo and the animals described in chapter 40 and 41, you're not getting in the zoo. You can't capture them. Only God can capture them. And that's really the point of chapters 40 and 41 is that God controls even these big mammoth beasts that we couldn't possibly contain. And not only does he control them, but he uses them for a good purpose. We go, Ooh, dinosaurs, T-Rex. Don't know if I, I, I don't know if I create that one. God goes, no, I did create that one. And I've got a good purpose for him, along with Behemoth, along with Leviathan. So he is, he is in charge of, of, all of, of all of these things. And his point is that he controls all of these things. He cares for all of these things. He superintends all of these things. Kind of like Job, or Kind of like God has a reason for taking away all of Job's children. And God has a reason for taking away all of his wealth even though Job doesn't know what it is and we don't know what it is god's got a plan he's not winging it he's not just trying and what's interesting is at the end of 41 god ends the description of leviathan and then that's it done there's no more conversation and job says i repent in sackcloth and ashes and that's the exact outcome that god wanted what's what's the point of all this It seems like all of these questions that God will ask Job serve to show Job how little he knows and how even less power he has over anything in the world. But it's God who has the power and it's God who has the knowledge of all things. And all of these questions I think are designed to put Job into a humble, worshipful state before God rather than some sort of an arrogant state where he thinks he's going to hold Job, or hold God to account. So what's our, what's our big takeaway here? I think our big takeaway from this section really needs to be that God's judgment is kind of a scary thing. It's a scary thing. Even Even though we are justified in Christ, we will stand before the Lord in judgment. And I don't think it's going to go how we think it's going to go. I think maybe we have some ideas about how judgment's going to go. Job had some ideas about how judgment's going to go. Judgment was a lot different than what Job anticipated. And really what God wanted was a soft heart toward his sovereignty. And I think that's what he's trying to get at in this section. So this morning I just have, I have two things and they are related to God's judgment and how God wants us to understand his judgment and who we are in the cosmic scheme of things. So the first thing is that judgment is us giving an account to God, not the other way around. In judgment, we give account to God. God does not give an account to us. So take a look at chapter 38, verses 1 through 3. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. That's pretty scary. That's God throwing down the gauntlet. Every aspect of these three short verses are very humbling. We are reminded here that God is the sovereign king of all the universe. That he is the one who actually reigns on the throne and his power is truly unimaginable. Yahweh, that's his name here, Yahweh answers Job out of the whirlwind. Well, what does that mean? Well, well, first of all, any anytime that God reveals himself to people in, in the Bible, we call that a theophany. So from two words, theos meaning God and phanos meaning an appearing. So this is an appearing of God. God appeared to Adam in the garden. He appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Those are theophanies. They are a They're a visible presence of God in some way. Uh, The book of Hebrews talks about how long ago, at various times and various ways, God spoke to us through the fathers. Well, he did that in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it was a whisper. Sometimes it was a dream. Sometimes it was appearing like an angel. Sometimes it's fire in the bush. Sometimes it's really pleasant. Sometimes like this, not so much pleasant. Not so much happy. Here, God appears to Job in what is basically a hurricane. That's really the word that is used. It is a strong, forceful wind that causes destruction. It's related to the word that was used in the book of Jonah, actually. You remember when God hurled a massive windstorm on the boat when Jonah was fleeing from God? Yeah, it's it's related to that word. It's like a hurricane of some kind. This is not a gentle, cool breeze that you enjoy, you know, on the summer evening. In fact, th- these kind of winds still go on in the Middle East. They're called a habub, is what they are, right? So you've got this... I didn't make the word up, okay? It's just what it's called. So you're sitting there, nice sunny day, and then you see this wall of sand coming at you. 50, 60, 70 miles an hour wall of sand. And when you see this thing coming, you run for cover and you tape up your doors and your windows because you don't want anything to do with it. It will destroy your whole village. It'll bury your whole village in sand. That's what God is coming to Job in. This kind of whirlwind, this kind of judgment, and it is in fact judgment because in other places, this word is used actually synonymous for God's judgment, not necessarily a physical whirlwind or a hurricane. So you see in Isaiah 29, 6, where God says, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and with great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And he's not talking about physical things. He's talking about you'll be visited by the Lord in judgment. And so this word incorporates the idea of of judgment. So God is appearing to Job in in this habub, this hurricane force wind, as an act of judgment. This is not God cuddly and cute to comfort Job. This is God whose patience has been exhausted. He's heard the arguments for dozens of chapters. And and he has done With all of their words, he is coming in power. Look at verse 2. He says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now think about the last time we heard God talking about Job. Last time we heard God talking about Job, he was commending Job. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. His integrity still stands, even though Satan incited God against him. And now here's God, and he's like, who's this guy? Who is this? Who, who's this darkening my counsel? Who's, who's this who's decided to speak against what I am doing? Do I know you? Now, obviously, God knows who Job is. But the idea is, who do you think you are? Coming at me with all of these empty words, The Lord accuses Job of darkening counsel, or if you have the NIV, it says, obscures my plans. It's kind of an odd phrase in Hebrew, but but it kind of means that that Job is sort of accusing God of dark dealing, sort of dealing underhandedly. That God is not acting right, and that's really Job's accusation. Of course, that's what we've seen throughout the book, is Job is saying, hey, I'm innocent. What God is doing is, is not right, and so he is fed up now with Job's accusations that he is not just. And so God basically says in verse three, you better prepare yourself for battle. You better prepare yourself for war. That's exactly what it is. Dress for action. Like a man, I will question you and you make it known to me. Uh, I don't know if you have new King James version. I think new King James has it, but the, the Hebrew phrase is gird up your loins. That's what it is. So back in the day, you know, people wore uh, tunics or robes, that sort of thing. And so ladies, maybe if you've, you know, worn dresses and tried to walk uphill or run, you kind of know you have to sort of like pull up your, your dress a little bit to run. Well, if you were a man in battle, you had to gird up your loins. So you would pull up your tunic, you'd pull up your, your robe, and then you'd wrap a belt around it. So you basically had a kilt is, is what you had so that you could go do battle. And so God's like, all right, man up. Hike up your robe. Let's go to war because that's what we're doing. That's what gird up your loins means in in the Old Testament. This is battle language. This is not, hey, we're just going to have a nice conversation. No, this is we're doing battle. You've been assaulting me with all these accusations, and now you're going to prepare to answer a whole bunch of questions. And he uses this kind of language a couple of times. It's pretty fascinating. Look over at chapter 40. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Do you see that word contend? It's the same kind of language. Are you fighting with me? Then you better prepare yourself for a fight. That's what he's saying. And he says it again, actually, down in verse 6 through 9. And the Lord answered Job, Out of the whirlwind and said dress for action like a man again, that's gird up your loins I will question you and you will make it known to me Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like god and can you thunder with a voice? like his I don't know about you, but the first time I see god those are not the words I want him to be saying to me dress for action like a man Uh, I'm looking for mercy. That's what I'm looking for. Lots of grace, lots of mercy. There's going to be a lot of awe. I know that, but it ain't going to be on my part. It's going to be on God's part. But this is what God is is saying. And again, this is the same God who earlier in the book commended Job for his blamelessness and for his uprightness. But Job is straight from that. He's been incited to sin with his words He's acted like a little child with his tantrums. He has demanded an audience with God, and he has no idea how powerful God is. He has no idea how holy and awesome and amazing the Lord is, whom he is now charging with doing wrong. And this is how I think we need to understand this. Just because we have been justified by faith in Christ, and we are no longer facing God's wrath, doesn 't mean that judgment will necessarily go just swimmingly for us every time we see the the concept of standing before the Lord and giving account in judgment it is meant to humble us it 's meant to give us a sense of awe that all of our life will be ba- laid bare before the Lord and the proper response that we should have is humility and awe and wonder at god it 's not to scare us like he 's some evil maniacal crazy guy no but but it is to remember our place in the cosmos that he is God and we are we are not listen to first Peter four seventeen. Peter says that judgment begins in the household of God that's where God's judgment begins it doesn't we, we think of God's going to go judge those nations he's going to go judge those unbelievers those people persecuting the church no you know where judgment begins with us Those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we will give an account first. That's where judgment begins, and we're not going to escape that judgment. James 3.1 says that those who teach are judged more severely than the rest. Do you know what more severe implies? That there's still a severity for everybody. And that verse is, is there to cause us to really think, all right, all my life, everything that I do and think and say. That's on the table for God to bring into account. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. We went through the Sermon on the Mount last year and the theme in the Sermon on the Mount is that the judgment that we face before God is going to look an awful lot like how we treat other people. We're merciful to others. God is merciful to us. We're patient and kind and generous to others. God is merciful and patient and kind to us. This is the ground That we are judged on. If we're severe with others, expect that God will be severe with us. Are we impatient with others? Expect that God will be impatient with us. If we belittle other people, expect to be told to gird up our loins and do battle with God. We'll still be in the family. Still there. Job is still in the family. God could have squashed Job, but he doesn't. He's still in the family. In fact, God will bless him. And amazing, and he'll say, actually, he was in the right of all the friends. He was actually in the right, but there is a sobering aspect of judgment. It's like when you're a kid and your little brother or sister, like like they're getting they're getting taken down the hallway to go get spanked, and you're kind of like, well, glad I'm not in there, because like, that's not going to feel good. They're still in the family, right? But they are giving an account for what they've done. God will both chasten us, he will also commend us. Paul says the day of judgment is like a fire that burns away all the garbage of our lives. And the only thing that remains is what is profitable for the kingdom. What we've done for Jesus. That's the only thing that will last. It doesn't mean we go to purgatory like what the Catholics believe. There's no purgatory. But there is a judgment. That's why Hebrews 12 says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. He's a consuming fire. We forget sometimes that the the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led the people of Israel out of Egypt. That's still our God. That's still our God. Jesus. The book of Hebrews says, led them around the wilderness. God's not just our homeboy. He's not our bro. He's not just chill, whatever. He is our father, but he is our holy father, our righteous father. And to him, we will give an account. So we are to walk in humility, knowing that just like Job, one day we will give an account to God. We will. Justified by faith in Christ, totally in the family. Yes. Give an account for every action, every careless word we speak, every thought that we have. Yes. And we need to live our lives in light of that judgment. The second thing that God brings up is who he is. And I mentioned this before. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. These are the two things that he brings up over and over. That not only did he create on purpose, but he sustains and provides on purpose. And that's really what the whole rest of of this chapter, but the other chapters, talk about as well. And so if we miss that God is the creator and the sustainer, and it's that judge that we will give an account to, we're going to miss the, the whole purpose of, of why jo- or why God speaks to Job. And so that's what we're going to see in the coming chapters. God says, I created the sun, I created the moon, I created the stars, I created the universe, I created the horse, I created the ostrich, I created all of this and I sustain all of these things. And this is what you need to know to prepare yourself for judgment. And that sounds weird. Why do we need to know that God takes care of the eagle in order to prepare ourselves for judgment? How does that help us at all? There was a there was a guy uh, who wrote a commentary and he said it's kind of a weird back and forth where Job is like, hey, God, I've been treated unjustly. God, I've been treated unjustly. God, I've been treated unjustly. And and he actually derides God. And he says, it's no answer to, to respond to Job and go, well, can you make a hippopotamus And we kind of chuckle at that because that's sort of what it feels like God is is saying. And it might be clever, but it's wrong. And it's wrong because God himself has determined that this is actually the exact line of questioning that he is going to give to Job to bring Job to the place where he repents in sackcloth and ashes. And you know what? It works. Right? That's the end game here. Is that Job actually, after all of this questioning about the universe and about the zoo, Job does in fact repent. He gets it. So whatever we see here, it is designed to humble us. It is designed for us to have the same response that Job had to God. And so I think this is actually God in his wisdom showing how powerful he is in creating the entirety of the universe, but also how caring and how sovereign he is in sustaining and guiding the universe down to its smallest little aspect. So we're going to just sort of walk through the rest of chapter 38. We're going to read a little, and I'm going to give a little commentary as we go along. So here God begins by talking about the earth in verses four through 11. So God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements, surely, you know, or who stretched the line upon it, the tape measure. On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther." and here shall your proud waves be stayed. So God says, "Job, were, were you around when when I formed the earth? Were you around when I when I made the measurements uh, of the earth?" This is this is God showing Job that his creation is not random. It is not arbitrary. It's not like God was just sitting there one Tuesday and like, "You know what? Let's make the earth round instead of square." Like, let's, let's make it spin around a big ball of fire. Like, yeah, okay, that sounds like, no, God does everything on purpose. Everything on purpose. All of creation, us included, everything is on purpose. Now, a lot of how God describes his work is poetic in nature. And we need to understand that because there are some people who get crazy and try and take poetry too literally. And this is where we get people who are flat earthers and who think that there actually is a cornerstone somewhere of the planet and we should find this cornerstone. And, and they don't realize that this is actually just biblical poetry. God does pres- uh, does describe some things in a more literal fashion, but we need to know where the difference is. God does not have a cosmic tape measure you know, like one of those Fat Max things that goes around the, the the girth of the earth to figure out how big it is. The idea is just that he knows how big it is. So there's not a literal cornerstone. There are no literal bars, you know, like little prison bars at the bottom of the ocean keeping the, the water from going back into the... No, it doesn't work like that. Like, like bars would help water stay in their spot. I think you guys know that, but there are crazy people out there and you will encounter them who think that there are some sort of literal bars at the bottom of the ocean. All of this is just... Poetic, to help Job understand that God is sovereign over all of it. He has created everything, including Job, on purpose. God doesn't wing it. He doesn't make it up as he goes along. He doesn't call audibles or have a backup plan. There is only one eternal decree of God, and that is what is working out in this world, bringing all things to pass, including creation, including us. Everything is on purpose. And he talks about like, were you there when I determined where the shoreline was going to be? Like, so the next time you're at the lake or at the ocean, and you and you look at that at that shoreline, like that's that's there because God wanted it right there. He determined that. I was I was driving I was driving this week, and there was a little dusting of snow on the after, after reading through this a couple times, and there's a little dusting of snow on the on the mountainside, and there's these trees, and and I was I was reminded of Bob Ross actually, right? Like happy little trees, happy little trees. Put a little snow on them. Put a little snow. That's what God does, right? Why, why is there snow on this tree and not this tree? You know why? Because God put snow on that tree and not that tree. Why? Because it gives him pleasure and glory. That's why. It's his creation. He can do whatever he wants. It brings him glory and honor and happiness and joy to not only create the whole universe, but to sustain it. He's our all sovereign God. He also turns the earth on purpose. Look at verses 12 through 15. God says, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. So here God gets a little bit more accusatory. When he was talking about the creation of earth, he was basically saying, hey, who did this? Who did this? Who did this? Kind of implying not you, but me. And here he gets more more accusatory. Have you done this? You called up the morning like, hey, morning, uh, it's time to pop up now. No, I didn't think so because that's what I do. I keep the whole earth spinning on time. That, that's that's God's job. That's that, That's kind of the comedy that he's talking about. When's the last time you started the morning up? Anybody started the morning up? No. Job hasn't done it either. Only God. Only God starts the morning up. This, this spinning that goes around is, is kind of, is kind of cool. Um. It talks about how, like, the, the, the sun is pulling itself up. It's grabbing the skirt of the mountains to pull itself up. Kinda of like a little child, like, grabs the skirt of his mom to pull himself up. That's, that's what he's saying is proverbially happening when the sun comes up. It's like it's grabbing the, the skirt of the mountains to throw itself up into the air. Like, that's, that's what God has designed. And as the dark earth becomes lit up with all its features, it's like a a flat piece of clay in the dark and and a mold is pressed over it. And so you see the features of the hills and the mountains and the valleys and the the rivers, that sort of thing. God does all that. God does all that. And not only that, but there's a a cleansing and purifying effect that goes on as the morning dawns as well. He says the, the wicked in verse 13 are shaken off of it. And then he says in verse 15, from the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. There's actually this, this cleansing effect that the morning has. The, the Bible talks about how a lot of deeds of darkness happen at night because people don't see them. And so God actually uses the morning to convict people of their sin and, and get them out of their sin and go about their, their normal day, right? So, so we wake up and we have our cup of coffee and we're having our little Folgers moment. And God's actually like, all right, wicked people, like, Go home, like stop doing your wickedness. Like that's how he's using the morning. We think it's just a nice little sunrise. God is actually convicting sinners of their sin, even with the morning coming on. That's pretty cool. What about the bottom of the ocean? What do we know about the bottom of the ocean? You know much about the bottom? I know nothing about the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, it's dark down there and cold and wet. I hear. I don't know. I haven't been there. Verse 16. God knows. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. So this is kind of an interesting section because in the Bible, sometimes the ocean, the sea, the deep is also a, a synonym for Sheol. So Sheol in the Old Testament was sort of the, the, their understanding of where people go when they die. Sheol was was kind of like heaven and hell mixed together. That was just their understanding of it. The, the righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished in this place called Sheol. In the New Testament, we understand a little bit more clearly heaven and hell. But but in in any case, this so, so scholars aren't sure if, if God is talking specifically about Sheol or if he's talking about the deep ocean. I think it's probably the deep ocean with a reference to Sheol. I'm not I'm not sure. Um But the fact remains 3,000 years after, after Job lived, we still haven't been to the bottom of the ocean, been to the moon, check going to Mars pretty soon, been to the bottom of our own ocean. No, the only one who knows what's down there is God. He's the only one. Now we've been down to some, some depth, but, but not the deepest depth. And God is saying, look, even the bottom of the ocean, I know what's going on. And I have created that and designed that for my glory, that wasn't an accident down there, five miles down with unbearable pressure. I designed that. That's on purpose. Everything I do is on purpose. The entirety of all of creation. On purpose, with a plan. What about light and darkness? What about the weather? Well, God knows more than we do as well. Look at verses 19 through 30. Where is the way to the dwelling place of light? And where is the place of darkness? that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. You're an old guy. Tell me. What do you know about light? What do you know about darkness? Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth and who is given birth to the frost of heavens? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you find the chain? Can you bind the chain of the Pleiades or loose the cords of the Orion? And then, and then he goes on. But, but his point here is what do we really know about light and darkness? What, what do we actually know about those things is, is light a particle? Is light heat? Is light a wave? If it's a mass, how is it affected by gravity? How do, how do all these things work? Like we don't even know. We're still trying to put it together for all of our scientific information. We don't know. God says, well, you're old. Why don't you figure it out? You, you were there. Tell me, tell me about light. I mean, can you imagine that sitting there at judgment? Like you're waiting to like, okay, well, I said this and this and this. And God's like, I want you to give me an excursus on light. Well, I don't really know. I know nothing. Yeah, that's the point. We know nothing and we control even less. And so when we accuse God, when Job accuses God, we really have no standing because we really just don't know Job knows nothing about snow or rain or desert conditions. He has no idea about the formation of ice and how God uses all those things, not just to water the ground, but he says actually to form war. So I'm kind of in this revolutionary war book reading kick right now. And it's just amazing to me how often weather actually determines the outcome of things. So like, like, you know, George Washington's men, like they're, they're like covered by this cloud of fog, That, that like just somehow magically evaporates like two minutes after they've all moved through it. It's, it's amazing. Or, or there's this cold front that comes in and it freezes the river just like when they need it to be frozen in order to cross it to attack the enemies. Or it just so happens to rain and everybody's gunpowder was exposed. And we're like, oh boy, that was coincidental. God says, no, it wasn't. I use weather. I even use weather for war. You read in the Old Testament, like, there's times when God's, like, throwing down hail. That's one of the plagues in Egypt. God uses all of it for his glory. None of it is, is random. God has the earth so fine-tuned that the rain in the desert is specifically for grass to grow. Like, I had to break my back, me and my kid, like, to, to put in a sprinkler system. And even now, I've got, like, dry spots. Like, God doesn't need a sprinkler system. He's like, rain right there. It rains right there. God, why did it rain right there? Because he wanted it to rain right there. That's why. Because everything is on purpose and with a plan. That's his whole point. What about the stars? What about the stars when they're covered by the clouds? Verse 31. Can you bind the chain of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth in their season or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that flood, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom, or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? And then he goes on and he transitions to the animal kingdom. But I, but I, but I love that. Joe, can you do any of this? Can you, can you do anything with the constellations? Can, do you keep them in place? Can you move them? Do you, do you bring them out every night? And I know our scientific minds are like, well, it's actually the earth turning God. It's not, it's not you bringing them out. Who do you think keeps the earth turning? It's God. God's doing it all. All of it. Job can do none of it. God has determined their existence. He's determined the existence of the clouds and the rain. Sort of like what we've seen before. I love in verse 37. Can you number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens? It's almost like when it rains, God's up there with a pitcher right? Just pouring. Like, that's me. I'm making it rain. There's no literal picture. I hope you know that. But it's God in control of all of it, all of our creation. And again, God's point in all of this is to get Job to realize that he just doesn't really know very much. And he has power over even less. That God has this whole mechanism called the universe going Precisely how he wants it. It rains where he wants. The constellations come up where he wants. The shoreline ends where he wants. The earth is the circumference that it is because that's how God wants it. He puts the snow in just the right, right place so that armies are thwarted by it or armies are advantaged by it. God does all of these things. And Job wants God to give an account to him. Yeah, judgment doesn't go that way. God says, no, you, you, you haven't the first clue about how this universe operates and you want me to give an account to you. No, let let me just give you just a little, a little slice about what I got going on here. Remember, we talked about this at the very beginning. God's got like 10 trillion things going on. We we're concerned about our deal, our life, and we should be, and God is too, but it's not the only thing that God is concerned about. God's got many, many things going on. And what this all will lead to in chapter 40 and then again later on is the humiliation of Job. Humiliation in the best way. Where Job finally goes, okay, I get it. God, you are the sovereign. I am your servant. I know nothing. And so I close my mouth and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. That's what God wants from us. When we see his sovereignty over the whole of the world, and we see our life, and our life isn't going the way we want it to, we have to kind of step back and go, all right, number one, God does care. He does know. But God's got this whole universe down, and we can trust him, and we can love him, and we can follow him in obedience. Let's pray. Father, you are great and mighty, far beyond anything we know. You have more going on than we'll ever understand, and so we pray that we would walk in humility in submissiveness to you, that you might get glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.